to be here this morning. Um, and I want to thank the church before we uh, go to the passage for praying for us. Um, we have gone through a season of sickness in the last two, three weeks. It was not fun at all. Um, I was, I had the opportunity of a for, of forced rest in the four walls of a hospital room for five days. Uh, it's been many, many years since I've experienced that. And it's tougher because back home, Lydia has to manage multiple kids who have fever. And then there were some emergency visits. There are some normal doctor visits to check what's going on. And you're stuck in the four walls of a room for five days. Uh, yeah, staring at the wall, I guess. Uh, but the Lord redeems everything in a believer's life. And uh, one part of what we are going to talk about this morning is about God's sovereignty. And I have learned about God's sovereignty in the last two to three weeks through this process. Um, like I said, I want to thank the Lord, thank the church for all those who prayed for us. I want to thank the church for all those who provided for us during this time, uh, physically with food, emotionally with just calling and just checking up. Uh, yeah, reminds me of why the church is called the compelling community because we compel each other as we walk uh, in the faith. Thank you, Rajkumal, for reading this. Um, the, the word of God for us this morning. Shall we all turn our attention to Acts chapter 4, verse 23 to 31. Acts chapter 4, verse 23 to 31. Okay. Okay. I'm told of a person um, who, when he reads a book, he reads the last chapter of the book first to see if it's worth reading or not. I don't know if some of you do it over here, but I would do something similar this morning where we are going to read the last verse of our passage today to give us a reason why this passage, this prayer, is worth studying and imitating in our lives. So instead of looking at the 23rd verse first, let's look at the 31st verse of chapter 4 of Acts first. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. When is the last time you prayed and the Lord shook the ground around you? This is an incredible prayer for God to react in such a way. So the question is, why did God respond in such a way to the prayer of the early church? Why did he respond in such a way? And to understand that, we will come to verse 23 of the passage of chapter 4. And we will read and that will give us the understanding of why God reacted in such a way. And the passage goes like this. When they, 
and they over here is apostles Peter and John, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we need you to come and make yourself known to us this morning so that it is to your voice that we hear by the Spirit. And it might be to your faithful call that we respond this morning. And it may be to your throne that we bow down. And so we need you and we thank you for the promise of your help. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So what are, what are some of the things to look out for in this passage? This might be one of the longest prayers in the book of Acts. And Luke wants us to understand, apart from other things, two main things. Firstly, something about who God is. And secondly, about what kind of prayer flows from having such a view of God. Firstly, about something about who God is. And secondly, about what kind of prayer flows from having such a, a view of God. And the objective here is to understand what kind of God is this early church, which is under persecution, so confidently praying to, and what can we learn from this prayer? And also, why is it that at the end of this prayer, this small group of Christians fervently pray, enable your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. So we'll, as we go through the passage, we'll look at five key aspects to note in this prayer. And I'll name a few. So the, f the first one being who is praying. And then we look at what is the occasion when it was prayed. Thirdly, whom is it prayed to? Fourth, what was, act, what was asked in this prayer? And five, what is the answer that came? Who was praying? What is the occasion? Who was it prayed to? What was asked? And what is the answer that came as a result of this prayer? Now, before we get into verse 23 and start off the passage, let's understand the context a little bit. Yeah, 
let's understand the context a little bit. So when we look at verse 23, it opens with when they were released. And like we mentioned earlier, they over here are Peter and John. And then when we take a few steps back and look at chapter 3, verse 7, they had healed a lame beggar at the beautiful gate in the temple. And they said, see, we don't have any money that we can give you. But what we have, we can give you in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And the lame beggar, he started leaping and running through the temple. And they give an account of this to the people of what happened. And then when we move forward in chapter 4, verse 3, we see that Peter and John were arrested by the priests and the Sadducees, and they kept them under arrest for that night. And then in the following verses, we, verses 5 to 7, we see that they are interrogated now. In fact, let's look at chapter 4, verse 5 and 7. Please look at your Bibles. And it reads like this. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Cephas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were part of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? And then in the ni next nine verses or so, Peter gives a speech to the authorities, boldly stating that I am doing this because of what I've seen and heard. And in verse 16 to 18, we see, we see these priests and uh, all these officials saying, what, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it. But in order that it may, it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them. Let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now, please note that. That's, that's very important. They called them and warned them not to teach at all in the name of Jesus. That's a life-threatening or a very hostile environment that they are in. But Peter and John tells them, For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Now, all that is the background to verse 23 where we come, where we read that when they were released, they went to their friends and they reported it. They told, they narrated what happened. And on receiving the report, they lifted their voices together to God. And then we'll see that they acknowledged that all that had taken place was under the sovereign hand of God. So that's where we are this morning. That's the storyline until now. And they are released, they go to their friends, report what is told, and when they heard it, what did they immediately do? Their immediate response is to lift up their voice together to God and pray one of the longest and powerful prayers in the book of Acts. What they immediately did was not make a few calls. What they immediately did was not build a strategy. What they immediately did was to lift their voice up together to God and pray one of the longest and pray powerful prayers in the book of Acts. And with that, we get to the prayer itself and we'll see what did they actually pray in this hostile environment they were in. The key to, the key to this prayer 
starts in the first two words that they say. It starts with the magnificent description of who God is. And they start off saying, Sovereign Lord. The first thing they do is to identify who God is with a strong word of power and authority. Now, so that all of us are on the same page, sovereignty means that God has the power wisdom, authority to do anything he chooses within his creation at any point in time. And think of this for a moment. They have been threatened for their lives and their response is an expression of their confidence in God's character. Their confidence in the attribute of God's sovereignty. They are recognizing what he has promised to be to them. And in other words, this largeness of their petitions or prayers is determined by the largeness of their vision of the glory and the power and the majesty of their king. So even though all that is going on is scary and a threatening situation, they can sleep like babies at night because of their total trust in the sovereign God of the universe who ordains all things. Charles Spurgeon once said this. He said, The sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night, giving him perfect peace. The sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night, giving him perfect peace. And this means that if we place our trust in the sovereignty of God, like this group of believers did, then we can truly go to sleep at night even through extreme opposition, difficulty, or suffering. Knowing fully well that the situation is under the control of his hand and his plan that he has predestined. Now that's what the church over here is doing. And brothers and sisters, unless we understand that God is absolute, he's an absolute sovereign God, it is almost inevitable that we will be stormed over by the events which are clearly evidences of opposition and persecution in relation to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. If this group of believers of, in the early church, if they did not understand the sovereignty of God the way they did, the moment this life-threatening situation had hit them, they would fall. They would get stormed over. And then, and then, Further on in the verse, they go to define the sovereignty. They go to explain the sovereignty. And the next two clauses explains who the sovereign God is. So they say, sovereign Lord, the one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. The God who made all the rulers, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the God who made even their, these enemies who are persecuting them now. And the one who owns everything and who is the author of everything. That's the first way how they explain the sovereign Lord or who he is. And, the second, and secondly, they are reminded of Psalm 2, which is a messianic psalm about Jesus, and they start re rehearsing it here. So the second explanation to God's sovereignty is mentioned as the one who is speaking through the mouth of David by the Holy Spirit and the quoting of Psalm 2. And here we see 
here we see God's sovereignty even over injustice. Look at, look at how scriptural their prayer is. And this should inform us, or this informs us how they prayed and should inform us on how we should pray. And they start quoting Psalm 2 in part. And they say, why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? They're asking a question. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? Now, this is a question that is asked from Psalm 2. And now we're going to see an answer here. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? And you'll see the answer in verse 26 to 28. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you appointed, who all both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So I want to break it up very clearly this morning for us. Why are the Gentiles raging and the people, including rulers like Herod and Pilate, why are they plotting and thinking that they have ended Christianity by putting to death the Lord Jesus Christ? The answer is in the last line. And the last line says to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Brothers and sisters, this is a powerful verse. You see how the flow is being mentioned here? Let me summarize this for you. So when we look at this part of this prayer, we understand that they heard this opposition to the apostles. They lifted their voices to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth. They identified God as the sovereign creator and who through the mouth of David predicted the opposition to Jesus would come exactly the way the Lord had planned it. How exactly his hand and his planned plan thought of it. And they are saying here that God is sovereign even over the greatest injustice happening. God is sovereign even over the greatest injustice, which was the crucifixion of the sinless lamb, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The greatest injustice this world has ever, has ever seen. So if God is sovereign over the greatest injustice ever to happen on the face of the earth, they trust that all their troubles are surely taken care of under the sovereign hand of God. So God is absolutely sovereign and he can do everything that he pleases to do and nothing can stop him and all that these people think that they are going to do to oppose and persecute God's people has always been known to God and very well in the control and plan of God so it's no wonder that they lifted their voices to God and they prayed and they prayed knowledgeably they prayed biblically and they prayed big. They recognized that this amazing interplay that's happening over here between God who's sovereignly in control of all things and yet the responsibility that was there on Herod and in hand with Pilate and they are saying these things in light of the scriptures and they, say, they, they take Psalm 2 and they say, isn't this exactly what the psalmist was talking about? Why did the Gentiles rage? Why did the people's plot in vain? And they said, that's exactly what was happening here. 
that the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. And church, I want to call out at this standpoint that belief in God's sovereignty doesn't make us passive. It fuels our prayers. Sometimes when we think of God's sovereignty, we think, oh, God is anyway sovereign. Why do I need to pray? He's going to do whatever he's going to do anyways, right? But that's what we get to learn from this church. Their understanding of who God is fueled a bold prayer to God. Than just saying, he's anyways going to do what he's going to do. So it doesn't matter. We don't need to pray. It gives real hope as we address our petitions to the, God, to the Lord who has all power in heaven and on earth and will accomplish all purposes. And I repeat this again, church, that the sovereignty of God, a God who is unfolding his purpose from all of eternity is at the very heart of biblical Christianity as the gospel reaches out to the various ends of the earth. Notice, notice what they say there. Lord, you have, you made heaven and earth, so you are the maker. Then they say in verse 25, not only are you the one who made, but you are the God who speaks. So you made and you speak. And in verse 28, they say, and you decide. You decide. What has happened here has happened as a result of a hateful animosity in light of Psalm 2, which is expressed, which is playing out in Herod and Pontius Pilate, who along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathering their forces against Christ. But all that they were doing was only what your plan, O Lord, had predestined to take place. So my dear church, when we do not pray, we are practical atheists. When we do not pray, we are practical atheists. So and as an example, for, if we are not praying for our children, for our spouse's spiritual growth, then we do not truly believe that God is sovereign to work in their hearts to grow them into spiritual maturity. If we are not praying over broken relationships, then we do not believe that God can restore or redeem it for his glory. If we are not praying fervently for specific sins that we struggle with, we truly do not believe in God's power to restore and sanctify us. And then in verse 29, then they continue their prayer and say, and now, Lord, and now, Lord. I wonder how we would have finished that. We might have finished it perhaps by saying, and now Lord, please remove these threats. Or we might have said, please judge or condemn this opposition. Or we might have said, and now Lord, please keep us away from persecution. But here we start to see a certain kind of prayer as a result of this great high view of the sovereign Lord. And this is a prayer, is a petition of boldness. What would they pray after they have established from Psalm 2 that God is the one who has ruled in the crucifixion of Jesus? What would they pray when they know that God is the one who decided that Jesus needs to be crucified and got that done? They spread out their situation in front of this sovereign God and they pray 
verse 29 to 31. Verse 29 says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. But before saying that, they said, And now, Lord, look upon their threats. That's the first thing they ask. Lord, would you take note of these threats? If you just look upon it, you will know what to do. Look upon these threats as it continues from Jesus and crucified him. And now it has moved on to us, the apostles. They understood that the threat is God's business. While the preaching and the proclaim, proclamation of the gospel was the apostles' task. And now, Lord, look upon their threats. And secondly, they say, grant that, you, that, that your servants to continue to speak. What to speak? Your word. How to speak your word? With boldness. How much boldness? All boldness. So their main request is flowing down from, that is flowing down from the sovereignty of God is boldness. Open, unashamed, confident and clear speaking about the word of God. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and also to the Greek. And they say, don't give us just some boldness, but they say give us all boldness. What does all really imply? In the, in the NLT uh, translation, it is, transla it is translated as great boldness. And I believe it mainly means two things. All implies two things. One, all boldness that is needed to accomplish the task at hand. All boldness that is needed to accomplish the task at hand. And secondly, all boldness that you have designed for the equipping of your disciples. So one is for a task, second is for the equipping of disciples as they go along with the gospel. And thirdly, do this granting of bold speaking while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed in the name of your holy servant Jesus. Now please note here that the healing is a specification of a particular sign. Let me explain that a little more. Why does the church pray for signs and wonders and healings to happen? Because they are, they are speaking with all boldness. The signs and wonders are serving the word. It's not the reverse. It's not that the word, the word was not to make the signs and wonders the ultimate thing. But the signs and wonders were there to make the word of God the ultimate thing. And the emphasis is not on human action or power, but on expecting the Lord to do what he pleases. Signs and wonders pointed to the preciousness and the authenticity of the truth of the word of God, which alone saves sinners and sanctifies the saints. Let's look at an example. A couple chapters back when we were looking at Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2 and 22 says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you all yourselves know. 
So the function of signs and wonders in this case was the attestation by God. And God is attesting to the words that Jesus was saying and the work he was doing with these mighty works and signs and wonders. And then in that chapter 2 verse 23, it starts with this Jesus delivered up. This Jesus delivered up. Delivered up by whom? Delivered up by the Father. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This is the Father's plan. And when Jesus, when he's speaking, he says, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down. I lay it down on my own accord. And brothers and sisters, at the very heart of the Christian gospel is the cross of Jesus Christ. And so any attempt to proclaim Christianity that diverts from the cross of Christ is no longer in keeping with the apostolic preaching and the apostolic priorities that was given to those who would follow. So in other words, people, people, all of us, ought to be saying, well, what is happening at the cross? And now, if we were going to be able to do this, if we were going to be, be speaking the word with boldness, we are going to tell people outside that on the cross, Jesus was wounded for our transgressions, that he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace was born, and with his wounds, we are, we are healed. In other words, the good news that Jesus offered himself to death for the sake of our sins, means absolutely nothing to us. Nothing to us until we are brought face to face with our need of a Savior. If you don't see the need of a Savior, what Christ did on the cross is a concept and not a reality for you. You will, you're never, you've never understood it. So if you so you see if we are going to speak to men and women outside with boldness concerning the word concerning the mystery of the gospel we are going to have to believe the message with all our heart to proclaim it Do you see the need of a savior in your life Do you see the need of the savior in your life And finally when they had prayed the place in which they gathered together, were shaken. Something like an earthquake took place. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now remember we said, when they started the prayer, they said, Sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in it, God confirms with the shaking of the ground that he indeed is the creator of heaven and earth. He didn't need to do that, but he does it. And if you trace across the book of Acts, you will see the result of being filled with the Holy Spirit repeatedly in, the, in this book. This book of Acts is, is this, that they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. So what does it mean to us sitting here to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Ephesians 5, 17 to 21 gives us an explanation of, of what it really means. Ephesians 5, 17 to 21 reads like this. Please listen to me carefully. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of God is. And do not get drunk with wine, 
for that is debauchery now debauchery is a big word so it it means over indulgence in sensual pleasures so do not get drunk in wine which is over indulgence in sinful in sensual pleasures but be filled with the spirit addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and praising and making melody to god with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to god the father in the name of our lord jesus christ submitting to one another out of reverence for christ in these verses being filled with the spirit is contrasted with being filled or drunk with wine and so being filled with the spirit means the idea of a person being controlled by god's spirit rather than by other forces to be filled with the spirit implies a follower of jesus yielding to the freedom of the holy spirit to occupy every part of our lives guiding us controlling us and then this power of the holy spirit can be exerted through us so that what we do is fruitful to god and when we are filled by the spirit we see a resultant attitude we see an outcome of joy and thanksgiving and we also see a relational posture of humility toward god and of submission to one another so coming back to the early church their prayers were answered in a sign of shaking and of fullness of god's spirit resulting in the word of god being spoken with boldness the character of the first century christian church was marked over and over again with the fullness of god and boldness but you'll need to remember one thing just a matter of weeks before this moment just just a matter of week before this moment the garden of gethsemane when the soldiers came to arrest jesus the disciples had fled in panic even at calvary when christ was being executed yes there was john yes there was mary but where were the rest of them peter was in fact staying in one corner denying that he has even met jesus let alone be any bold boldness is the key word of acts 4 and the apostles had not been bold but now they were because they had seen the risen christ and have been, having been drenched with the holy spirit but they still needed more boldness so they asked for it surely the great need of the church of jesus christ is simply this for us to have spirit filled christ centered boldness let me ask you this if the local authorities in bangalore told us to stop preaching the gospel today how would we respond they come in tell us no more of this you're done how would we respond the great need of the world continues to be to hear the good news of jesus christ through the preaching of the gospel and whatever pressures or threats we might face these passages in acts gives us hope for ourselves our children and our churches church let it never be said of you and me that the reason we did not have christ centered boldness was because we did not dare to ask that we did not ask boldness is a biblical word and that means that god defines it we are not bold witnesses when we think we are being bold 
we are bold witnesses when god thinks we are being bold and when god looks down on us and says now that's what i call bold and for people like us that's a miracle and god works such miracles when we ask and so i want to conclude if you are not a disciple of jesus let me urge you to look to this god who would not even spare his son to pardon your sins he moved through the pages of history using kings and rulers like herod and pilate for your sake so that you would be forgiven of your sins and have abundant and eternal life please consider this gift of salvation extended to you in jesus christ he is your only hope not just in life but in death if you are a disciple of jesus let's celebrate let's enjoy your our salvation in jesus and rejoice that you no longer carry the burden of sin and shame you're free to experience god's sovereignty as a blessing in all of life circumstances he's over all things and we belong to him what is our hope in life and death christ alone Christ alone though life may be filled with difficult circumstances challenging relationships and the general struggle for faith and holiness there is no safer place to be than under the wings of the almighty god and our lord jesus christ and to make it even better we can freely boldly run to him with all of our cares and burdens gaining depth in the understanding of the sovereignty of god leads us to pray as the early church did for christ centered boldness as we live out our christian life on this earth so may the lord help us to be like the early church to be transformed in the renewing of our mind that by testing we may discern what is the will of god what is good and acceptable and perfect here are a few questions for us to ponder on during cell group uh, and the objective of this is we would really apply what we have heard to this morning to our own self so that we may grow from one degree of understanding of one degree of glory to another to grow in maturity in Jesus Christ let's pray sovereign lord the maker of heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it we ask that we may be filled with all boldness just like the early church we ask that we will be transformed in the renewing of our mind that father what you your plan for us and your plan of salvation for us will not be like pearls thrown in front of swines but we will be like that man who found the greatest treasure and did not even have enough money to buy it but sold all the possessions bought that treasure and held it on to his chest help us in our unbelief oh lord we thank you for your word that transforms transforms us and we ask that the holy spirit will do the work to convict us to encourage us to correct us to rebuke us to do what is necessary to make us more like jesus 
in the coming days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.